I see no objections. It is so decided. The UN Environment Assembly on Wednesday approved the resolution to create the world's first ever global plastic pollution treaty. It's being described as the most significant environmental deal since the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. Now the hard work begins. An intergovernmental committee will meet to nut out the details, with the treaty aiming to cover the full life cycle of plastics, from production... Finally, after years of watching the plastic pollution crisis get worse here in Asia, the UN Environment Assembly agreed last month to negotiate a global plastic treaty that promises to create a roadmap and turn the tide on plastic waste here. Hi, I'm Marcy Trent Long. Welcome to the Sustainable Asia podcast. My name is Wu Yufei. I'm a Sustainable Asia producer based in China. And I'm Jennifer Turner director of the China Environment Forum at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. Global treaties take a long time to negotiate. So is it possible that countries will sign a global plastic treaty in the next two years? And even if the treaty is negotiated and signed, will it have enough teeth to make a difference to the plastic waste crisis that has persisted over the last decades here in Asia. In this episode, we will speak with academic and solid waste management experts from around the world, Japan, New Zealand, and Indonesia. We will talk to them about why we need a global plastic treaty that covers the entire life cycle of plastic, from production all the way to its end of life, which we hope is not in the ocean. There, I think, you know, in order to understand where we're going to, I think we need to understand where we've come from um, because that's sort of the historic part that's really important in the, po the politics of this issue. That's Tricia Fairley, co-director of the Political Ecology Research Centre at Massey University in New Zealand. Tricia wears a lot of hats. She is co-founder of the New Zealand Product Stewardship Council and the Aotearoa Plastic Pollution Alliance. She has also been a member for the last five years of the UN Environment Program's expert group on marine litter and microplastics. You know, the global community started to learn more as the scientists became better at communicating the impacts of plastics. And so, you know, when the scientists predicted that plastics, are, you know, are going to double by 2040 and that leakage into the oceans are going to triple by, by 2050, I think it really woke everybody up in a big way. And so now we started seeing things like, you know, the, the manifesto from businesses um, who support a global plastics treaty, um, the call to action manifesto, which was signed by like over 100, 750 civil society, women, indigenous peoples, workers, trade unions, children, and youth group. Um, I had a part to play in, in drafting up a scientist declaration for the treaty, and that was signed by over 300 scientists and research institutes. So there's lots and lots and lots of support. And I think that it's really about how the science is getting to communities and then how communities are pushing up for 
policy change not only nationally but regionally and internationally and it's kind of culminated i think in this resounding call for a plastic pollution treaty a legally binding treaty in 2015 indonesia was the second largest marine plastic polluter in the world and one time my kids and i we were you know at the beach on a holiday and we de- decided okay let's clean up you know the place that we're in uh it was at the belitung island like somewhere uh outside uh sumatra and then there's a fisherman coming in from the ocean he's just walking and then he saw us picking up plastic he says you don't need to do that when you go home today and you go back tomorrow you'll see all the plastics are here again because they came from the ocean that's just the way it is now that was linda yandi sulistiawadi She is an Indonesian lawyer and currently a visiting senior research fellow at the Asia Pacific Center for Environmental Law at the National University of Singapore. Linda's research focuses on international environmental issues, and recently she co-authored a book entitled Marine Plastic Pollution and the Rule of Law. In Indonesia, nationally, uh we don't have specific regulations on marine plastic pollution thankfully in the international level the united nation uh, the unea 5.2 just decided like recently like early this month that we are going to have an international agreement on plastic pollution that would cover you know from the very beginning in the upstream and to the end in, in the downstream of plastic I see no objections. It is so decided. In addition to laying the groundwork for a legally binding treaty that considers the full life cycle of plastic, from fossil fuel extraction to plastic production and consumption to post-consumer waste management, the United Nations Environmental Assembly 5.2 mandate also sets a broad scope for the global treaty to cover all plastic pollution in any ecosystem from oceans to land and in the air we breathe so now with all this built up and the mandate being passed what would the global plastic treaty signed by countries from asia to europe to africa to latin america actually look like that is likely to be a combination of legally binding and voluntary mechanisms and included in the text of the mandate is the provision that the negotiations also take into consideration um national context challenges perhaps limitations so over the next 2 years each country will have a representative on the UN intergovernmental negotiating committee commonly known as the INC and this committee is the forum where they will hammer out this global plastic treaty And Asian nations can lobby for global standards that will help them meet their own national plastic pollution prevention plans. As part of this two-year negotiating process with the INC, we'll need to account for some of the limitations in the specific context in which they're operating. And we know we um we know that each region, each state, um, um you know, small island developing states have really specific um 
limitations. Um, and many of those are down to um, access to science, technical support, financial support, uh, capacity, and so on and so forth. It's encouraging to note that the treaty negotiation will have to take into account the variety of needs of each individual country. Sounds complicated, but they did it for climate change, so maybe they can do it for plastics. This treaty will also address the entire life cycle of plastics. There are different perceptions of where the, the scope of that full life cycle lies. And for us, the Scientific Advisory Committee, Tricia is referring to her work as a member of the UN Environment Program's expert group on marine litter and microplastics. The beginning actually starts at extraction of the natural resources required for the feedstocks for fossil fuel-based plastics. And in fact, it doesn't end at point of management, it doesn't, doesn't stop at recycling or at landfill, for example. The end of the life cycle is actually unclear if we look at the science, because plastics last for many generations and certainly they last for a long time in a particular form they might break down and i'm doing inverted commas here they might break down after hundreds of years but they're actually all the while leaching toxicants into the environment into human bodies into the bodies of wildlife so the full life cycle of plastics is quite different from the full life cycle of other materials and one plastic is not the same as another plastic because they're made of very different chemical components as well. So often I talk about plastics in the plural to really emphasize the fact that not all plastics are the same. So we need to be dealing with them in quite different ways. Now you know why we need a global plastic treaty. Linda, who we talked to before, also believes that having a legally binding treaty rather than voluntary commitment is key you know, these protections will ultimately rely on legal instrument as the backbone of the protection. Why do I say that? Because in a legal instrument, you have written definitions, you have written limitations, uh, required actions with sanctions and incentives and guidance and instructions, as well as st standards needed for marine plastic pollution. So, you know, once it's binding and then people would, you know, have to adhere to it, it's, it's not voluntary anymore, it becomes mandatory. I think, I think that's the power of a legal instrument that, uh, that makes it so important for underrated issue such as marine plastic pollution. But Linda also gave an example of how a global legally binding treaty can be so complicated. Countries like Indonesia could find it very difficult to implement. Take the Basel Convention Amendment, for example, which lays out rules for transporting unsorted plastic waste between countries. When the Basel Convention was originally passed, it took decades for all the participating countries to begin enforcing the laws under the treaty. Currently, the U.S. has not even ratified the Basel Convention, so it is not an enforced part of U.S. export regulations. For example, in Indonesia, we had a case in 2020 where there was some containers coming in from the U.S. It's a, you know, it's an industrial plastic waste that was sent to uh, Indonesia to Medan, the the port, and then. Um, there was some confusion because the U.S. is not a party to 
to Basel Convention, and we're not supposed to receive any uh, plastic waste import from countries that are not parties. But because of the local officials didn't understand the plastic waste was received, period. And I'm pretty sure Indonesia is not the only country who's uh, battling with this confusion. So hopefully with, you know, a larger regime of plastic uh, pollution treaty, we'll have a clear uh, direction, uh, you know, for like national and local officials to, you know, have common understanding of what's going on. Would it make things easier if the Global Plastic Treaty simply banned single-use plastics, as well as those plastics that are really difficult to recycle? I think there will definitely be priorities, um, and certainly a priority is a very large category of plastics, and those are the single-use plastics that are not the necessary single-use plastics. They're not used for our survival, they're not used for medical equipment, they're not used for, for emergency equipment where we don't have alternatives at this time. Um, so yes, there will be priority categories, I'm, I'm sure. And you can see that certainly in uh, national policies and legislation popping up all over the world. Pacific Islands, for example, in some Pacific Islands, they've banned the importation of um, disposable nappies or you know um, diapers um, because those particular items for those countries are so problematic. You know, you might be looking at um, a, a common one is, you know, plastic straws that might be de determined as, a, as most problematic, particularly in um, coastal communities where that may be a real problem for their wildlife. It's pretty clear that for the Global Plastic Treaty to be effective in Asia, it will need to provide flexibility for countries' specific plastic waste challenges, like navvies and straws. Exactly, Yufei. And it's going to be pretty hard to get all that into a legal framework that everyone agrees to. Luckily, there are a few regional groups here in Asia already cooperating on marine plastic pollution. Tracia, for instance, started an alliance of South Pacific and New Zealand islands with the goal to reduce marine plastic pollution. And for the past couple of years, I've had some encouraging conversations with a variety of regional groups in Asia tackling marine plastic pollution. ASEAN has a regional group called PEMSIA, and the UNEP and Japanese government have sponsored a program called Countermeasures to identify plastic hotspots in the Mekong and other Asian rivers. Recently, I spoke with Michikatsu Kojima, an economist based in Japan and previously Indonesia, who works with the Economic Research Institute for ASEAN and East Asia. He said, ASEAN developed the kind of regional action plan, but uh, uh, they developed some action to the marine plastic issue. So that is supported by World Bank. And uh, GIZ also supported some EPR mechanism in Southeast Asia. Uh, and uh, Japan also supported to establish our kind of regional knowledge center for money plus debris. GIZ is a German government affiliated group working on sustainability issues in Southeast Asia, including plastics. A number of other European government and non-government organizations are supporting initiatives here to reduce plastic waste. I guess we need all the help we can get. But it does point toward the need for a global treaty rather than just regional cooperation. 
the money plus device issue is a kind of a, a transfer in the issues. So we need a kind of cooperation uh, among the neighboring countries, of course. So uh, so such kind of the regional initiative is very uh, useful. And uh, I attended a kind of a, some meeting of the COBSI and they can share uh, their experience, uh, good practices. So I think it is a very good uh, initiative. So it's good that we have a starting place with some inter-country cooperation happening in Asia to deal with marine plastic pollution. What do you think are the next steps going forward on this two-year journey to negotiate a plastic pollution treaty? It really is down to the mandate at this stage. There is, uh, There will be a meeting for um, a task force group to start thinking and talking about the development of this, you know, intergovernmental negotiating committee who will be on at timeframes and those sorts of things. This negotiation committee, or INC, met only once before 2022. And from here on out, they're going to meet as many times as necessary to conclude a plastic treaty before the next UNEA meeting in 2024. That is really speedy. And how will Asian countries be involved? So we did a research uh, together with the WWF uh, recently in 2021. We did a research report based on uh, countries' perspective for a new plastic treaty. And um, I think it was 10 countries and all of them gave us like very positive uh, affirmation that all of, them, all of them want a new plastic treaty that's detailed, clearer, and give them you know, a, a boost of confidence when they're dealing with you know, big companies that are bigger than the states themselves. So yeah, there, there, there are definitely uh, confidence problems when we're talking about smaller states versus you know, bigger companies. And we know that you know, plastic giants are very powerful. So that's probably one of the roles that you know, the new plastic treaty would help uh, states in terms, you know, in terms of bar- you know, leveraging their bargaining position when they're talking about uh, plastic pollution. The UNEA also asks that the treaty take into consideration some issues important to Asia. The mandate also asks the INC or the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee to also consider a number of other um, uh, items in its deliberations, so obligations and measures, um, a financial mechanism um, towards uh, maybe a, a dedicated multilateral fund, a uh, scientific and socioeconomic mechanism. And this is something I'm really excited about, you know, the best available science, but that includes traditional knowledge, knowledge of Indigenous peoples and local knowledge systems. And that's something, it's a text we fought very hard for in the mandate. In Asia, we have very strong traditions. I know the Chinese medicine recipes that my grandmother used to use. We believe there's a lot to be learned from the elderly. So the fact that the Global Plastic Treaty includes language protecting this knowledge of how things worked before plastics came into play is really exciting for me. Linda, who is from Indonesia, feels the same way. She told me how plastic waste is ruining some of the traditions. One particular incident that stuck to my head was at the time when we climbed the Mount Bromo in eastern Java. 
So um, if you climb that mountain 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, and you know you can peek and see the crater of Bromo, you know, very huge, very beautiful, very majestic. And you'll see what you'll see uh, at that time would probably be some offerings from the tribal uh, communities of Bromo. But when you climb it now, you will see not just the offerings, but also plastic waste that, you know, are thrown there by people who climb to see the crater and, you know, have their plastic offerings <laughs> to the volcano. It's very sad. The plastic will stay there for years and years and decades and hundreds of years. This season on the Global Plastic Treaty was produced in partnership with the China Environment Forum at the Wilson Center and was sponsored by the Japan Foundation Center for Global Partnership. Jennifer Turner of the China Environment Forum was your co-host. Uyu Fei of Sustainable Asia was also your co-host and associate producer. A big thank you to our guests, Tricia Ferrelli of Massey University, Linda Yanti Suli Stiawati, at National University of Singapore and Michikatsu Kojima of ERIA. Alexander Mobison created the intro outro music made from repurposed and recovered waste items. Mm-hmm.